As I mentioned, last Sabbath, due to the context of my sermon, some of you referred to me as a bit of a Scrooge for Thanksgiving. And today I'm going to start off with a little bit something negative, but don't worry, I'm not going down the same path, so it'll get better uh, in, in a moment. Uh, since the 1990s, optimism in our nation has taken a precipitous drop. The nation that Tocqueville once wrote about, they had unbounding hope, unbounding optimism, no longer exists, at least studies report. 76% of Americans as recently as 2014 said they no longer had optimism that their children would have a better future than they did. Even just as recently as 2001, 49% said that they believed that, 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 that they were optimistic for their progenies in the future, whereas now only 21% of individuals have hope for their children. Young people who are usually, based on studies, far more optimistic than older people, no offense older people, but studies just show that young people have a bit more of a, a rosy outlook on life, even that their outlook has changed. Now 64% of them, 35 and under, are on the side of a pessimistic future. It is the first time that they know of since they've started analyzing this that our young people are more pessimistic than optimistic. We don't have optimism in the financial markets, even though they are at an all-time high. We don't trust or have optimism in our government. Trust in this group has been lower than it's ever been in the past. People have lost trust and lost optimism in the goodwill of police in some segments of society. We are not optimistic about the church. The church is also a recipient of the lowest uh, viewpoints of individuals in history. Here is the thing that is interesting, though. In the course of our history as a nation, even when we've been a little bit pessimistic for one reason or another over the course of time, about various institutions, there has been a general uh, grace or optimism towards our fellow man. But even that, studies show, has dissipated. Not distrust in, or, or lack of optimism in institutions or government or church or Wall Street, but even a lack of optimism in one another. To quote one millennial, I'm leery of everyone. I'm leery of everyone. Only one-third of us have a general optimism towards our fellow man, according to studies. And with such growing pessimism in our world, I today want to talk to you about an optimism that does exist. An optimism that is not dependent upon my optimism or upon your optimism. It does not rise or fall with the financial markets or who our political representatives are. It is an optimism that just is. And it is God's unfailing optimism in you and in me. Now someone may say, well, in my present form, I'm not worthy of God's optimism in me. I would say that for me personally, I don't feel worthy many times of God's optimism or God's good outlook upon me. And since I feel that way about myself and you may feel that way about yourself, I'll affirm that 
lack of optimism in you and agree with you about the way you feel about me, and you can agree with that the way I feel about me since we're not optimistic towards each other anymore. Two-thirds of us feel that way about each other anyway, so we'll just agree that none of us are good at this moment. Others may say I haven't done anything in the past to merit God's optimism in me. I could say that of myself as well. I don't understand the goodness of God many times. And probably most, for most of us, both our present and our past, we would say are not really worthy of God's true optimism in us for our future. But praise God, the, the optimism of our Lord, praise God uh, that our, his optimism is not built upon a meritorious system. It's not built upon a meritorious system. I want you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans chapter 4. We read scripture today from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is all about how Abraham was counted, considered, declared righteous because of his belief, because of his trust in God and God's promises. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. The Bible tells us, and therefore, speaking of, Rome, of, of Abraham, it was accounted to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. Then continuing on in verses 23 through 25. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him or that it was given to him, but also for us. It shall be given to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our or for our justification. Paul declares that the gift of righteousness that Abraham received was not just a gift for Abraham, but a gift for us as well, for each and every one of us as well. It's, it's a gift that God gives to us freely. Paul declares that this gift of righteousness that Abraham received was not on the condition of his present state. It was not based upon his present condition. You see, Paul is writing this to these people because there were some in their midst that believed that only if you were a part of a certain group would God declare you righteous. Only if you were, were amongst this labeled group would you be declared righteous. In Paul's day, that group was the circumcised. Look back at verse 9 of Romans chapter 4. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? He's asking this question because he knows there's many people that he's writing to that in their hearts, they believe the only ones that can be declared righteous are those that have been circumcised or a part of the circumcised group. And so Paul asks the question, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be given to them also. What is this saying here? This is saying to us that Abraham received that declaration of righteousness before he was part of that circumcised group, before he was classified within that certain category. What Jesus, what, what Paul here is reminding us is that, is that the righteousness that is given to us is not based upon our present title 
or status. This would be like us declaring in our day that someone is justified by faith only after they've started keeping the Sabbath, only after they've shown that now that I keep the Sabbath, I'm showing to God that I am part of this particular group. Circumcision was a sign that followed faith. It was a sign that followed trust. Trust, just as I would hope that all of us would agree that Sabbath is a sign that should follow faith, not the other way around. In other words, God declares his righteousness upon us, and then the sign takes place. So in other words, our present condition does not determine God's optimism in you or in me. Abraham's condition, his his present condition changed as a result of his faith. Also, past actions do not determine God's optimism in you. And I say amen to that. Can anyone else agree with that? Past actions do not determine God's optimism in you or in me. Romans chapter 4 again, verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He can boast before his fellow man, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him. It was declared of him that he was righteous. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him as righteousness. Paul here states, what he's basically saying is that one can work and gain nothing but his or her due from his fellow man, but gain nothing in the eyes of heaven. One can do no works, Paul is saying, and still receive justification. How can that be? Because the justification, the the righteousness that is given to us is not based upon your works or my works. How else would we explain the thief on the cross? He didn't go down off the cross. He didn't say, hold on, I just realized something. Let me go down. Let me do a couple good things. Okay, I climb back on. Jesus, I did some good things. Now remember me when you come in your kingdom. No, we know he didn't do that. He was on that cross. He got down. He didn't didn't get down or do any works. And yet the Lord still said to him, when I come in my kingdom, I will remember you. In other words, God declared him righteous. God justified him in that moment apart from any works. Of course, some people, there's always a few that are already thinking about what they can say to me maybe after the service regarding the relationship between works and faith. And just let me assure to you, I understand the book of James, and I understand the teachings on the relation between works and faith. Our works are a result of our faith. It is clear from the book of James that works should be a natural outflowing expectation of our faith. Just as Abraham was justified by belief, by faith, he still went and got circumcised. He still did the work. Not before the faith, but after the faith. This would be like us saying only once you pay tithe, you are justified. Absolutely not. Yes, once we have faith and and we grow in our faith, the natural outflow should be uh, our works, which may include paying tithes and offerings. But God's optimism in you and God's declaration over you is not based upon our past deeds or our present condition or even 
upon your future deeds. God has optimism in you, not based on the past or on your current state. He has optimism in you because he knows what you can become through faith in him. Just as Mark was talking to the kids, one of the things we look at, one of the joys we have when we look at the children and as we watch them grow, as we, we see, we begin to see these gifts develop and we know what they can achieve and we're excited about that future. In that same way, God looks upon you and he knows who you can become. He has optimism in you because he knows that you can become something amazing, that you are something amazing through faith in him. My favorite verse in the book of, in the chapter 4 of Romans, maybe in the entire book of Romans, is verse 17 of Romans chapter 4, but we're going to begin in verse 16. Romans chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you, speaking of Abraham, a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Calls those things which did not exist as though they did. That phrase right there in the book of Romans is one of my absolute favorite phrases. Yes, this text could be referring to and, and could be speaking of and referencing the, the creative and the recreative power of our God at a corporate level, at a, at, a, at a mass and macro level. But when I read this text, I see that God is specifically talking about Abraham. And so when I read this text, chapter 4 and verse 17, I don't see God just referencing his his. his global creative or recreative work, but rather God is talking about a specific individual. I don't see this as only talking about God having creative or recreative power on a mass scale, but, but I see it as God speaking of the creative and recreative power he has in your life and in my life. A God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence those things which do not exist as though they already did. I see a God who is optimistic, who calls that which does not exist as though it already did. All of chapter four seems to be about the faith of Abraham. It seems to be about, about Abraham's amazing faith in his God. But when I read chapter 4, right in the heart of it, I see the most amazing thing, which is, which is not the faith that Abraham and God, but rather the optimism that God had in Abraham. That he would call something which does not exist as though it already did. That God calls things, people that are, that are not as faithful as they should be, people that are not as sturdy as they should be, people that are not as perfect as they should be, and he calls them not based on who they are, but based on who they will become through him. 
God didn't call Abraham because he had already done great works. God didn't call Abraham because he was already part of the circumcised class. God called Abraham not as he was, not as he had been, but God called Abraham because he saw who he could be. And that's how God calls each and every one of us. Without verse 17... Folks, without verse 17, I could read all through Romans chapter 4 and actually become very, very discouraged. Some may say, well, how is that? Isn't Romans 4 tell us it's not based on our works? It's not based on our present condition? Yes, but Romans 4, without verse 17, says it is based upon my faith based upon my faith. And I don't know about anyone else in here, but I know that at times I've worried that my faith isn't strong enough. I don't know if any of you have had that experience where you question your own faith and wondered if, if, if you were faithful enough, if you had a, enough faith to really trust God. But Romans chapter four and verse 17 that says, God calls into existence the things which are not yet as though they already were. It, it, it reminds me, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the calling or the faith? The calling came first. God called Abraham not based upon his faith, but based upon the optimism God had in Abraham could become. And this optimism, this relentless optimism that God had in Abraham grew Abraham's faith. I don't think Abraham just suddenly developed his own faith. I believe that, that his faith was grown as he recognized God's optimism and belief in him. What happens to us when someone believes in us? It changes us, right? When someone really is optimistic about us, when someone really has belief in us, it changes us. I didn't write this in my sermon, and, and I, but it came to my mind in the first service, and I want to share it with you also. I, I suddenly remembered uh, a time when I was in middle school, in junior high. We didn't call it middle school back then. We called it junior high. And I was at Loma Linda uh, Academy, and I had already developed some, some not-so-great habits in my life. And when you went to middle school or junior high, seventh grade, you had to be in either choir or band. And I had been in band, but I didn't do so hot in band. It was all a little too disciplined for me. And so I wasn't in band anymore. Now I find it so funny that I'm telling my kids every day, you need to practice, you need to practice, you need to practice, you need to practice. And I'm thinking to myself, you always said, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it. And uh, praise God, my kids are taking after Christina and they're doing it well. But... Um, but, but I wasn't so disciplined, so I was out of band and I was in choir. Well, I like to sing, but I wasn't really that, uh, but, I, but I realized something about choir, that it was very easy to sneak out of the choir class and just not show up. And I also discovered that there was the gymnastic girls had their practice at the same time as I had my choir and it was much more fun to go hang out with the girls in the gymnastics building at Loma Linda than to go to choir. Can anyone get an amen on that? No? Okay. You forgot when you were a teenage boy. But that's what I did when I was in seventh grade. And then when I was in choir, I wasn't exactly the most well-behaved. I was, I was a little bit mouthy and not really someone that, that, that did a great job of, of being in choir. So we finished my seventh grade year, and we come to eighth grade. And um, I go to sign up for my classes. We were already in a high school structure. I go to sign up for my classes. And... They told me that I couldn't be in choir. And I said, why not? Well, she won't let you in the choir. You know, I, I, was, I was banned from choir. 
but I also couldn't be in band. I wasn't going to be in band, so I was kind of in this limbo state. I hung out with teachers for a bit of, the, of my eighth grade year during this time. I wasn't allowed in choir. I wasn't in band. No one wanted me. I was a, an orphan out there in the musical world. And, and, and so I just hung out there. Well, one evening, uh, I was at the Loma Linda University Church, and I was walking through, through, uh, through the courtyard area there, and the music teacher, uh, Mrs. Smith, saw me. The choir teacher saw me. She said, Chad, come here. She said, why aren't you in choir? And I said, because you kicked me out. She said, yeah, let's forget about that. And she said, she said, I need you back in choir. Do you think you can come back in choir? I said, well, why? She said, well, our men really aren't very good. And you sing really loud. She didn't say you sing really well. She said you sing really loud. And she goes, and we need some strength in our men's section. And so... Will you please come back to choir? I think you could really help us out. You could really help us out. Well, suddenly, everything changed just based on that one conversation. We need you. We want you. You, I think, can help us out. You know, I did. I joined back up to choir. And did you know I was probably, it might have been the only class, that I was a very honorable student in. I never missed choir again. I was in choir all the way through the rest of high school. And at the end of that year in eighth grade choir, the uh, Mrs. Smith, she gave out the end of the year awards, and she gave me a plaque, and it was for outstanding baritone. And she gave this speech before she spoke that I'd been the light of her life. I'd gone from being kicked out the year before to the light of her life there in the eighth grade choir. Well, how does that happen? It happens when someone sees us, when we realize that someone has, believes in us and is optimistic about who we can become. It changed my entire direction in that context of choir. I believe that if we understood that the God of the universe sees us in this way, how much impact it could have upon us. Our lives. Abraham did not grow his faith. It was God's optimism in Abraham, I believe, that grew his faith. Turn with me to the book of Genesis real quick. Genesis chapter 12. We'll be done in just a couple minutes. Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before he had received the name Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Abraham believed God and left his homeland. It seems to be this huge act of faith. Was he already a giant of faith? Was he already perfect in faith? Well, what is the very next story of Abraham's journey in the book of Genesis? Does anyone remember what's the very next story? What does he do? He goes to Egypt, and what does he ask his wife to do? Don't tell anybody you're my what? Wife. Why? Not because I'm worried about you and your purity, but because I'm worried about my my life. I don't want anyone to hurt me. So why don't you just lie a little bit for me? It was a partial lie. Remember, a partial lie is a whole lie. It was a partial lie that Abraham 
that Abraham had his wife tell because he was worried about his own life. Wait a second, hadn't God just tell him, I'm gonna make you uh, 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 the father of many nations. I'm gonna make you into a great man. You're gonna be a blessing to everyone and everyone's gonna be a blessing or is going to bless you and those who don't bless you will, will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. Isn't this the promise that Abraham believed in when he left his country and now he's thinking to himself, wait a second, who's gonna protect me? I'm going to have to protect myself. It's not such a moment of great faith. Could it be that Abraham, this pillar of faith from Romans chapter 4, struggled with faith just like we do? But then notice in, in Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14, the Bible tells us or in Genesis, not Romans, sorry. In Genesis, the Bible tells us that, that God then comes back to Abraham, and the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot is separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, I guess it's chapter 13, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see I will give you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Was not this the man that just after receiving the promise of being a great nation had doubted his own safety, had tried to protect his own life? Why is God promising him great things again? Is it because Abraham was so great? Is it because Abraham's past dictated that this is what God should do? Or is it because God calls that which does not yet exist as though it already does? Is the story really about Abraham's great faith? Or is it a story about how Abraham grew in faith because God never gave up on him? God always saw who he could become. And God's optimistic faith in Abraham spurred Abraham on in his faith. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know today that the same God in heaven that saw what Abraham could become even when he was not yet there is the same God that looks down upon each and every one of us and sees who we can become even though we are not yet there. The same God in heaven who promised Abraham's blessing not based on the works that he'd done but based on who God knew that Abraham would become is the same God that gives us blessings, not because we've deserved them, not because we've earned them, but because God knows who we will become in Christ Jesus. It is the same God that when Abraham messed up, God promised him again to be that he would be great. It is the same God that when Abraham messed up again, God again promised him that he would be great. It is the same God that when Abraham messed up again, that God promised him again that he would be great. That same God that kept optimistically seeing who Abraham could be is the same God that will keep coming back to you because he sees who you can be in him. Not because you're perfect, but because he calls the things that do not exist as though it already did. Last week, some of you on your cards indicated that you're having a hard time 
finding much to be thankful for in your life at this time. In this pessimistic world, I want you to know you have an optimistic God that knows who you can be and who you will be through him. If you have nothing else to be thankful for this season, even if you don't have optimism in yourself, the king of the universe has optimism in you. And I pray that I, op, that optimism will change you as it's changed me. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your optimism in us. Not based on who we've been or who we are, but based on who we can become. Lord, I pray that we will begin to see you in this light. So many of us still struggle with the question, do I have enough faith? Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I worthy enough? Lord, I'm reminded of what Mrs. White says, that, that we often are harder on others and upon ourselves than the God of the universe is on us. And I thank you that you don't see us as others see us, that you don't see us as we see ourselves, but I thank you, God, that you see us through the eyes of your son, Jesus Christ, who is perfect in all ways on our behalf. I thank you that you see us not as we are, but as we will become in you, Jesus. May your optimism strengthen us and may it change us from day to day. In your name we pray, amen.